Hey. Hi. Look at that little baby. Oh, she's reaching for the mic. <laughs> she knows what's up. I think she's I think she's more like, why are you holding me like this? Yeah. I hate being held like this. Oh, <laughs> it's like, a cute baby. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. I want to do a little follow-up that I forgot to do last week when we recorded and I meant to do. Um, okay. So a couple episodes ago, we talked at some length about simplicity in open source software and discoverability and all of that stuff. And I felt like there was a point that I wanted to make that I wasn't able to eloquently make. And I was a little, I like, I was thinking about like, how, how did I want to say that? And then later on in that week or maybe the next week or something, I listened to another podcast called Accidental Tech Podcast, which is generally people talking about Mac stuff and complaining about Mac stuff. But it's a good podcast. People should check it out. I'm sure a lot of our listeners already listened to it. But they, in a surprise, where they never really have guests, they had Chris Latner on the podcast, who is the person behind Swift, among other things, like the Clang compiler and crazy stuff like that. And in it, they were talking about like, how do you decide between like power user features and just like general features? And he had this quote about languages or maybe Swift specifically, but he said, the complexity inherent in the language needs to be progressively disclosed. And I was like, that sums up exactly what I was trying to say. Like the complexity of Rails should be progressively disclosed to you. And sometimes it's just like, boom, here's a whole bunch of complexity. And the, we took you from zero to a hundred and you had to dig to find this complexity, right? There was no progressive disclosure right. for you. But I like wrote that down and I was like, we should talk about that on the podcast because that's exactly what I was trying. I think I was trying to say. I feel like some of the stances that people take when it comes to complexity or, you know, when people talk about easy versus simple, which I think is is kind of a bullshit argument. I, I think both sides of that argument are bullshit, actually. Well, sum up that argument for me. For years, I have this bookmark to the simple made easy talk or something like that or easy made simple. I forget what it is by Rich Hickey because people keep referring to it, but I've not actually watched it. So sum that one up for me. <laughs> I think that's probably the talk where this whole argument actually comes from. I've not seen that talk either. Okay. But the idea is that it's very easy for a framework to make something easy, but that doesn't mean that what it's doing is simple. And the difference is basically how easily a person can understand it. And that simple is better than easy. And if you shoot for easy rather than simple, it's too easy to hide complexity or bury complexity and have that come back to bite you. Okay. And you don't like that argument? I don't like that argument because it basically assumes that abstractions can't exist. Mm, of the two seconds I know about this argument, <laughs> doesn't it say... Right? Those are the two sides. The one side is abstractions basically don't exist, and the, and the other side assumes that abstractions never leak, and I think both of those people are wrong. Right. Certainly abstractions leak. We've all seen that. Yeah, but you and I don't care about assembly that often. Right. Is there not room for a simple abstraction? In, in this there argument? Is. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and the, the thing that I sort of try and shoot for is go for easy, don't necessarily go for simple, but also understand, assume that your abstraction is going to leak, and the best way to hedge against that is to have another well-written abstraction one layer down. Right, yes. Which will also probably leak, and the same argument still also applies, but... Yeah. I think in the context where Chris made that comment... They were talking, if I remember correctly, I know at some point in the podcast I talked about this, but it was um, 
Swift, it's actually really great. They talk about like garbage collection. They get into some really nerdy stuff. People should listen to it. But they were talking about Swift does ARC, which is automated reference counting versus doing garbage collection. And it does that for various performance reasons. But there are performance downsides to ARC. Like you have all these reference counts in your code now that you didn't necessarily need or want. Like you might be able to, you might be able to look at a piece of code and go, well, I know it's going to do these reference counts here, but I know it doesn't have to because of all this other information I know. And so he was talking about a feature about being able to basically turn off ARC for a block of code and be like, I got this, right? And those were the types of complex features that he was talking about. Like ARC is complex, probably relatively simple to explain, right? It's just like, I'm going to count references to a thing. And when it gets to zero, I'm going to get rid of it. Well, well, ARC is not necessarily just the same as reference counting, right? Because Objective-C, at least on iOS, because I never did Objective-C for Mac, I only did it for iOS, but prior to iOS 4 did not have ARC. It was still reference counted. Objective-C has always been reference counted, and that runtime's always been reference counted, but you would have to manually call, retain, and release. Right. Or alloc and release, depending on whether you created it or just were retaining it. Right, that's the A in ARC, right? Automated. (laughs) Right, but like reference counting itself also has inherent costs, and and one one of the original reasons behind the idea of garbage collection was that, in theory, a separate garbage collector could have less overhead overall than reference counting, which sounds like nonsense because reference counting seems like such a simple thing, but in theory could be true. And it's certainly easy to do in uh, much more easy to parallelize than reference counting is. Right. And I believe Objective-C at one point did add a garbage collector. And then they were like, actually, you know what? We like this ARC model better. And they encouraged people to stop using the garbage collector. Or at least I mean, Apple added it. Auto re- there's auto-release pools, which are kind of sort of like a garbage collector. I believe it was a thing. Objective-C 2.0 garbage collection versus automated automatic reference counter in iOS 5. Yeah, so it was a thing for a brief period of time. Okay. I think. Anyway, we'll, we'll do an episode of Build Phase where we discuss whether or not it was uh, a thing. <laughs> but yeah, they, they definitely went down that road and then decided like, no, no, we want ARC. And on this podcast, he makes a good, pretty good case about why. Like he lays out like, here are the pro garbage collection arguments and here are the pro ARC arguments, like the pro non-GC, basically. Some sort of reference mm-hmm. counting arguments. And... He lays out a pretty convincing case that the future is not with garbage collection. I mean, I we'll agree see. with that. Yeah. <laughs> Just mostly for the unpredictable semantics of it. Right. If you have a file object in Ruby, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to rely on the destructor on that object being the thing that actually releases the underlying file handle to the operating system. You could do that. You probably should do that just in case somebody forgets to call close so that you're not leaking them in general. But if you, the programmer, are actually just relying on that to be the thing that closes the, fi- the file, which is a limited resource on the operating system, hope one that you have bigger problems if you ever run out of at this point in 2017. But for the sake of argument, pretend that's still a, a resource that's limited in practice, right? You want to know that a limited resource is going to be freed when necessary. The garbage collector only cares about memory as a limited resource. It doesn't know to run a garbage collection cycle when you're running out of sockets to open or file descriptors to reference. Right. It's funny that you mentioned running out of like files and you would have a bigger problem on your hands because the bane of my Rails development existence right now is uh, running out of handles for forks. Right. For- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Forks are a little bit easier to do. Because of a problem with the listen gem. Right. But that one's, that one's not a... Uh... 
problem caused by garbage collection versus manual men- memory management. No, no. I was just when you said that, I was like, oh, I have that problem every day. I have to kill FS event D and <laughs> let it kill <laughs> all know, those the process. Other, like that determinism also just goes into right. You have predictable throughput. You don't have spikes. Yeah, and I've I've seen that problem doing performance related work on projects before, where you like people will come to us with like, oh, our website's performing poorly, and look like. It's really weird because sometimes like this action is just really slow versus when it's usually fast. And I can't, I, you know, I'm looking at it to try and see what's causing like all these objects to be created. And it's like, oh, ultimately that action just paid the penalty for running after some other action that created right. a lot of objects. And so now it's had to trigger the GC, but it's not necessarily that action that did it. And it's like, oh, well, how do I find the action that did it? It's like, all right, well, that's a little harder, but we can, we can do that. Well, I mean, you can also just tune your GC to run out of band. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> How would you do that in a regular Rails app? Basically, you run it in a Puma configuration, if I remember correctly. Basically, you just always run garbage collection in between requests. So like when the request is done, GC, basically. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that would have helped. So this is where, do you remember, you saw the blog post about Go's new garbage collector, right? I don't think so. So Go has some new stuff they did in their garbage collection. So there were two blog posts of, in particular that, that I think were interesting. The first one was the one that was on the Go language blog, which was describing like we did all of this groundbreaking new stuff on our garbage collector that brought the maximum stop the world time for garbage collection down to 150 microseconds, something like that. And then a subsequent blog post that explained why everything in, in the Go language blog's blog post was complete bullshit. That's much bullshit, but like presented it a as groundbreaking work that nobody's ever thought of before and b didn't present it as what it is which is a trade-off and their trade-off that they're optimizing for is pause time at the expense of everything else one of the biggest ones being throughput so there's eight or nine different important metrics when it comes to garbage collection but those are probably the two most important what's your maximum pause time and how many cpu cycles overall is the garbage collector consuming and those two will almost always be directly inversely correlated. So if you have lower pause times, you almost always have more overall cycles. So fewer objects can be collected per second. And we're starting to see a little bit of optimization for pause time at the expense of throughput in Ruby as well, which I think is just kind of hilarious because in a Rails app in particular, that's the one case where literally you want the opposite. You want to optimize for throughput at the expense of everything else because you can afford an indefinitely long pause as long as it's between requests. That doesn't affect your users. And if you're doing that so that you have the highest overall throughput, that means that you will have the shortest amount of pause time overall. It just might be in larger spikes. But as long as those spikes aren't when a request is being processed, that just doesn't matter. Right, but if I mean, on a reasonably busy server, requests are always being processed. I mean, we're, we're talking about sub-second pauses. Right, that's true. And you have other servers. There's also an article that's in making that's been making the rounds about uh, WebKit's garbage collector, which yep. has a fun title. It says "Introducing Riptide: WebKit's Retreating Wavefront Concurrent Garbage Collector," which is just like they threw one, two, three, four, five words in there that like if you didn't know anything about programming, you'd be like, "What are these people talking about?" But it is a. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. We don't have to talk about it, but it's a really good like if you are reasonably technical and are interested in things like garbage collection but don't know everything at play they do like it's an article that you can read and understand so i did that and like i'm not up on on gc but it like defines like different terms for you and then like it talks about pauses and stuff like that like sean was just doing so if you don't know what that is that's a reasonably technical heavy post that you can read and be like "Mm, i think i 
get like 70% of this. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a good article. Cool. What else do we have to say about GC? <laughs> I mean, certainly coming from, from the Rust angle, I'm big on GC is not necessarily the future. Just because I've seen the light of like, oh, you can also have a language that doesn't have GC or reference counting. I mean, it does have reference counting, but not like for all objects all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can do that and not have to care about memory management. And it's really cool. And then for the cases where you don't have complex sharing of memory that requires some form of garbage collection, be it reference counting or a garbage collector, you don't pay that cost. And you have deterministic freeing of both memory and other resources, which is really, really nice. Even if you exclude other resources, right, if you're just talking about memory, it's really nice to be able to just benchmark some subset of your program and know, yes, and that is that is how fast it will run. Right. It won't suddenly change because of GC pressure. Yeah. I mean, certainly for performance-intensive things, where you care about consistent performance, where you care about high performance, I think those languages are going to win. I mean, I think everybody cares about consistent performance regardless of whether or not they care about high performance. Sure. I just think that in a GC language, you're never going to get that perfectly consistent performance, but... No. Although, apparently in Go, now you can. I guess. Yeah. Certainly not in Ruby. (laughs) No, certainly not in Ruby. Our garbage collector has gotten a lot better in the past four years. There were some rough spots, though, as it was getting better. There were some, oh, yeah. I there mean, was that whole, like, is this even ready for production bit that blew up a little bit? And then, like, as it was... Well, certainly in 1.8, the garbage collector was a joke. Right. But I'm talking and about, like, once, matter. I think, like, 2.0, 2.1 or something like that. It was like, there was some big change. Was that when they went to... 2.0 was generational garbage collection. Yes. I don't remember what it was in 2.1, but there was another big change in 2.1. Copy on write? Is that a thing? Yes, but that wasn't related to the, that wasn't related to garbage collection. That did introduce another write barrier, though. Incremental garbage collection was introduced in 2.2. What was in 2.1? There was definitely garbage collection change in 2.1. Yeah, it's been changing a lot. That's kind of what I meant. Well, and then it's going to change more in uh, 2.5 when... Um, well, it changed... I don't remember if Aaron landed... Maybe he was working on it after 2.4 shipped, but Aaron's working on the compacting garbage collector, which will be huge. 2.1 was generational GC. Okay, so maybe it was 2.0 was, was lazy sweep, I think. Mm-hmm. Or incremental sweep. I thought that was one nine, but maybe that maybe that was two zero, because one nine was Yarv and yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it just seems like every every release has some sort of major. I guess two four didn't really change the garbage collector at all, but it has some sort of major GC thing, and it makes me wonder. Like, are these all in the same direction? Are we like? I guess like when you have a garbage collector, you're basically never going to be done trying to make it better. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I mean. One of the important things to understand, and this is part of why I disagree with the approach Go is taking, like, if you're looking at garbage collection, or garbage collectors, rather, the JVM is is sort of the bar, right? And there's a reason that you can tune the shit out of the JVM's garbage collector and switch between three or four different garbage collectors, all of which are optimized for different use cases. If you want to optimize for literally above all other metrics, throughput only... The garbage collector we had in Ruby 1.9 is the best possible garbage collector you can ever have. A naive, stop-the-world mark and sweep. Uh, Because that will spend the fewest overall number of CPU cycles for the amount of work that it does. Everything, Everything else we've done improves metrics that people care about, but it has been, even if it's not noticeably large, at the expense of throughput. And I remember that. I was thinking, I was laughing because I was thinking about that project we had that we worked on together where we were just like obsessed with trying to keep the test suite under 10 seconds. 
and we disabled the garbage collector as part of the test suite, which is not something I've done since, but it did, <laughs> it did save us a little bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, all these tests can run in memory. Go. Like <laughs> The uh, composer, which is the package manager for PHP, uh, I remember there was a huge thing that, depending on, on your opinions of PHP, were either like, oh, this is so amazing, this is great, or like, lol, PHP is so bad, where they saw a three times performance improvement by disabling garbage collection for their binary. <laughs> Let's take a break to talk about this week's sponsor, FreshBooks. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. Challenging? Yes. But our friends at FreshBook believe the rewards are so worth it. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. And you can also see when your client has seen your invoice, putting an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash bike and enter the bike shed, all separate words and all uppercase in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you to FreshBooks for sponsoring this episode. I don't know what to think about PHP. I haven't written much of it. And what I've written of it was like not what modern PHP looks like. So right. I do think that like before I talked to people who write modern PHP, I used to think that like PHP was a safe thing to rag on be like, oh, PHP, LOL. But now it's like, oh, there are people who are just as good at writing PHP as I am or others are at writing Ruby and care just as much and like PHP just as much as I like writing Ruby. Sure. So I try. No, I mean, definitely most people who rag on are ragging on PHP 5.3 and earlier, and it's changed a lot since then. And the PHP I rag on is like the stuff I wrote and was able to push up to like my home directory when I was at college so I could have like a PHP page or something. Right. Well, I mean, you just <laughs> FTP into production and just edit the files right there. That's, that's the only real way. To, that's the, that that's the only sane way to do it. That was I mean, it. Come on. My first programming job was editing Perl files on a server. That's what we did. <laughs> like yeah. on a, First, it was on the live server. And then they were like, we'll give you guys another server. And then when you're done, you can SCP the files over. <laughs> Uh, and that's that's what we did. Yeah, my, no, no my source first control. job was the same thing, but ASP Classic. Yep, yep. We also did ASP. Yeah. After we moved from Perl, we did ASP Classic and the sim- and similar similar things where we were. I don't think we. I was out of there before .NET came around. I remember giving a presentation on .NET and being like, "Here's a." This was when I was at college, so I remember giving a presentation on .NET. But I remember people. Like, I remember having to talk, I was like a manager of the programming team at that point, and I remember having to talk to people being like, um, can you not edit the files directly on the production server? Because, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, people get really annoyed when <laughs> when the app breaks <laughs> with the, when they're using it, and then magically fixes itself, and then all of a sudden there's new functionality. <laughs> I think it's just uh, weird looking back on it, because, like, version control was a thing back then. CVS was around, SVN even was around by then, I think. But like, it wasn't until my third job that source control was used. It's, it's. I think a lot of developers nowadays take for granted 
how amazing it is that just Git is ubiquitous. Right. And like Joel on software had that post that was like, if you're going in to interview for a job, here are some questions you should ask. And like, I think number one was like, do you use source control? And if you look at that post now, you're like, do you use source control? Yeah, it's not, it's not a question it's you not need a to que- ask anymore. Like, like if you, I mean, I guess you should ask because if the answer is no, it's like, okay, thanks. See ya. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you run for the hills. No, but like nowadays the question is, do you use GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket? Yeah. I and like I think when when I was finishing up that job at college we had moved to Visual Source Safe which is Microsoft's like little baby source control system and then at my first job out of college we also used Visual Source Safe and I remember the senior developer there was a guy who had the Visual Source Safe server running under his desk and he once left for vacation where he had every file checked out and locked so like to check out a file in Visual Source Safe you had to lock it basically and so no, nobody else could check out that file while you were editing it, which, you know, don't, you don't have merge conflicts because nobody could have changed the files you were editing. But then also we weren't able to, to, to like, <laughs> we had to basically break into his computer and figure out a way to like reset the admin password and, and unlock the files because he was going to be gone for an entire week. I, I feel like CVS was worked kind of, maybe not quite that bad, but I feel like CVS had a similar function. Yeah, I mean, you can exclusively... I, I also use Perforce at when I was uh, at Akamai. And, I mean, you could work on things by not exclusively checking them out, but most people just check them out exclusively and then check them back well, in. Yeah, I mean, why would you want anybody else to edit the file that you're editing? That would mean that they could, like, do something that would conflict, and that would be bad. I ended up using Git P4, which is like a Git wrapper around Perforce. <laughs> which was allowed me to act, allowed me to work with like local branches that were cheap to make. Like that's another thing is like branches used to be incredibly expensive to make in something like CBS yep. or in Perforce or an SVN even. Yeah, you know, now it's like we take for granted like having an entire basically it's not an entire copy, but whatever you could think of what you can think of is like an entire copy of the application right here and then I just create a new one and I create another new one off top of that and then oh, I go back yeah. to master and I reset and like all this stuff. And, th- like, and then a month later you have to go garbage collect all the tiny little work in progress branches that you made <laughs> and then forgot about. I do try and keep my branch. I, 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 I have good branch hygiene personally. I try to as well, but I still find every three or four months, at least on diesel and rails, I still like do get branch, which in theory I should have somewhere between zero to five and I find like 50. Yeah. But like, yeah, we all have mostly settled on Git, seemingly. And it's funny. There's a decent number of people who are very, very into Mercurial. Yes. And Mercurial is like, to me, from what I know of it, inarguably better. It's like, oh yeah, that's better. And it's like a more friendly interface. And Git is like, I think somebody here once described it, or maybe they read this somewhere. I don't, I don't want to attribute it to somebody. But basically what I heard once is like, it's a nice system that you could build a usable source control system on top of. Right? And it's like, there's so many commands that I run on a day-to-day basis. It's like, what is, like the other day I was thinking about, I was in a branch where I had committed some changes. And I was like, actually, you know what? I want to take all the views from master. And like all those view changes I made, forget it. I want to get rid of those. And the way to do that is like you get checkout master hyphen hyphen <laughs> app views. And it's like, how would anybody know that that's what that is? I only know that's what it is because I've had to do it enough times that I remembered like, oh, yeah, this is where you do this stupid hyphen hyphen thing. I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For me, because I, I agree with you, but it's also like... People say that I would be a better Rubyist if I used pry for debugging instead of puts, which is true. 
I don't know if that. But was... then I have to, then I have to like relearn right all of this muscle memory right. But it is just really weird, and I never like the command for like checking out a branch is the same as checking out a file is the same. Like checkout does so much, and if you understand Git under the hood, you understand what it's doing, and you're like, of course that's what checkout does. But most people don't think right. about it on that level. They think about like what they're do. They think about the task they're trying to accomplish. Well, none of the commands are well named. Yeah. Even like things that don't stand out as obviously wrong, just like rebase. It's kind yeah. of a nonsense term yep. other than the thing you do to rebase in Git. Right. I don't know if Mercurial has a better term for it or not, but like... Rewrite? Rewrite yeah. history? <laughs> Rewrite, rebuild, something like that. Yeah, rebase. Even checkout. Like that's that's a holdover from you were like marking a file on a server as being like, Derek has this file checked out. Is it exclusively right. checked out or is it, you know, can you also check it out? Like that kind of thing. And that's just a holdover from that. So yeah, a lot of the language doesn't really make much sense, but. Oh. I mean, it makes sense if you work on Git. Right. If you think about it the way Git thinks about like the files and the SHAs and things like that. There's a thing that I know a couple people around Fatbot have used. I don't know if anybody really, really likes it, but there's TIG which describes itself as an n-curses-based text mode interface for Git. It functions mainly as a Git repository browser, but can also assist in staging changes for commit a chunk, like basically tries to be a better wrapper around Git that you can still use from your command line. It's not something I need because I feel like I've, from, from what I've learned of Git, I can do. Yeah, Git's not something that stands out as a, as a bottleneck for me anymore. Right. But certainly learning it, I was like, rebase? Oh, God, what does this do? Sure. And like, am I going to lose things? And then you learn about reflog and you're like, okay, reflog, or, or as I called it for a long time, reflog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why? I, mean, I never flogged it. Why am I reflogging it? I don't know. <laughs> it is a good one to know. I always teach it uh, when I was when I was still mentoring at Turing, I'd always teach reflog as the and when you think you fuck something up. Right. This is the command to save you, but this is why I tell you commit all the time, even when you don't think you need to. Right, because <laughs> it's still there. No, I mean, if nothing else, there's probably an argument for we should all switch to Mercurial, if only because it's so much easier to teach newcomers, and if we're not using Mercurial, they're not going to learn Merc Mercurial, or we're going to get annoyed whenever we have to pair with them because, oh, you used Mercurial, I don't know Mercurial. Yeah, I mean, probably I, an argument, I've never actually used it. I've just heard, like, when you find somebody who is passionate about Mercurial and you mention, like, oh, we're all using Git, and they're like, no, 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 I am not using Git. I use Mercurial. And here is, <laughs> and then they go on a thing and they start talking, and you're like, yeah, that sounds better. That really does sound better. Um, yeah, so that's it. Git, if you're a, if you're a Mercurial user, user uh, write in and tell us all the ways we're wrong about everything we just said, or uh, tell us about what we're missing in Mercurial land. I don't know. It's like there are so many things where it's like, yes, this is a tool that seems like it does things that would make me more productive, but it's addressing something that for me isn't a bottleneck in my workflow. Right. And requires learning. Like I don't use Tmux. Mm -hmm. If I want tabs, I just use tabs from my terminal emulator. And then splits are a thing that I've done occasionally and they're a pain in the ass, but usually like I'm fine with just backgrounding a process, running another command, and foregrounding the process. Yeah, that drives me nuts. And like, <laughs> no, and I don't doubt that it's objectively worse than the alternative. It's just not a bottleneck. To me, Tmux is like a, I use it because it's the best thing I've found that does like, I want to have things on the screen side by side. 
basically. Sure. And I don't want to like resize windows and with my mouse and or even use keyboard shortcuts to like bump the window, make it a little bigger or whatever. Uh, any of those solutions I've never really taken to for whatever reason. And then I mean for me though, that's always just I want vim panes side by side. It's so rare that I actually want something that's not in a vim pane. Oh, I always want like a vim like if you look at me while developing, I will generally have either vim open full screen with like a pane on the left and a a, a split on the left and a split on the right right? Like test in a implementation or whatever the yep. case may be. Never any Vim tabs. I don't use tabs in Vim because I can never, I don't know. It's just like another thing for me to try and remember another contextual bucket, I guess, for me to try and remember. And then I will, if I need to interact with like a Rails console or something like that, I just open a split below that and I go into Rails console, not a Vim split at this point, a Tmux split. So I get a shell below right. that. And I just hit a Rails console right from there, which I find pretty useful. And I don't doubt it. I just never find myself really that like, oh, and I really wish I had my my Vim right next to my terminal output here. Usually, usually I want test output, but I'd rather have that in a Vim quick fix list anyway. Yeah, that gives like quicker navigation to, to source files and whatnot. Yeah, I do have that through Vim dispatch as a thing I use, which opens a Tmux split to run the test. And then when it's done, it copies all of the output to a Vim split that I can jump down to and be like, oh, go to that file or whatever. Um, which is nice. That's a solution for people with slow test suites. <laughs> what which is? all of my test suites are slow, so I should probably do that. <laughs> Need to get in like a Tmux tab while while the test suite runs. Oh yeah, yeah. I just have it block my entire editor while it runs. Yeah, and I don't think there's a there's a I, like I'm not one like you keep saying like yeah that would probably be better, but I don't know that it is. I think whatever works for you is better in the, in this case. What what I'm saying is it's not that like oh but my workflow works for me. I mean my workflow does work for me. It's that. I can see how if I took the time to get into that workflow and learn all of the associated keyboard shortcuts with the new tool, I would probably be more productive. But like we're talking about the things that cost me seconds or even fractions of seconds, which I get that those add up. And there are the ones that's like, you know, this costs you seconds, but it costs you seconds every 30 seconds. And that really adds up. But now I'm at the point where I think most of those I spend the majority of my time thinking about the problem I'm solving and really the only way to fix that is either to get better at thinking or use a language that better mentally models what I'm thinking about. Right. What you just described is me like in Vim, right? Like there are so many yeah. people who are so much faster at Vim or even just faster typers, typists, faster typists than I am. Like I'm reasonably fast because I type a lot, but I have no like I'm not a classical like home row touch typist kind of person. I kind of do my own thing. Like some people who I am friendly with will razz me for my Vim skill, right? And I'm, I, I generally pick up one thing every few months where I'm like, oh, I never used to do this, but this is now like muscle memory for me and this is how I'm going to do this. Uh, but yeah. I'm still HJKNL and all over the place and people are like, oh my God, will you hurry up? Or like, and it gets worse if somebody's watching me. Like if somebody's watching me now, I'm like, oh, they're judging my Vim use. They're judging my Vim use. Oh, no, 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 no. But like my point is like while I'm HJKNLing, I'm thinking about what I'm going to write. Like, yeah. I'm not like, <laughs> like, whereas I've worked with other people who are just always doing something on the keyboard and my brain doesn't work that way. Like they're always doing something, even if it's like do a thing, jump down two lines, do another thing, jump back up two lines, change that. And I just rather like think about it, slow down and then do it one time. So I don't think that right. any of those people, some of them are probably faster than me because they're just faster than me. But if you took somebody who knew like the same number of things I knew and made them a faster typer, I don't know that they would get more done. I think it's just a different way. I don't use HJKNL that much. I do use paragraph navigation a lot, which is uh, curly braces. Mm. Not that you're writing Ruby code that has a case statement that has like large segments for each <laughs> case. 
But if you were to work on a project with me that had case statements and large segments of code for each case, and you were ever wondering why I'm really anal about wanting a new line in between each of those blocks of code, it's because if there's not a blank line there, I can't navigate to it easily. Oh, so you want like case foo, when bar, and then your block of code, then blank new line, then when? If it, I mean, we're, if we're talking 15 lines of code plus okay. for that case, then yes. Okay. I wouldn't do that, but, you know, hey, maybe uh, everybody. <laughs> it's mo- it, mostly I just need to have at least one blank line per screen. Yeah. Is what I look for. To me, it's a good rule to just not have a block of code that goes over a screen. <laughs> right. That, and, see, and this is why I prefixed it with not that you're writing this code. But, like, you know, I know... Certainly most of the people who I work with who use Vim nowadays, and if I recall, this got really popular at ThoughtBot. I think it might have even been Ben who started this trend of using relative numbers for everything. Yeah, I don't use relative numbers. I, f- I, f- I don't either, I f- and I hate it. Yeah, I, I do hate too. Because like, I use num- you know, line number G all the time. Right. <laughs> I don't want to have to do math to figure out. Right. You know, or uh, number key single tick to create a new mark. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have to do math to figure out what li- what line to mark. And it's weird when you're pairing too, because you're like, there, you know, somebody's doing something, and you're like, oh yeah, up there on line three, line four, line five, <laughs> line six, line seven. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. The line number changes as like they're doing something else, and you're like, no, no, look at line three. I mean line four. Like, <laughs> anyway, yeah. most people that I have paired with are not using relative number anymore. It was really hot around here for a while, but uh, most people I've paired with are not doing that. You know, now that I'm just thinking about it, I think my most common form of navigation is actually just search. Yeah, I do a lot of that too. Just whenever whenever I think about like things that are the bane of editors and IDEs, I just think about Rails. Because like there'll be a bug and save. Cool. Let's go to the definition. Which of the eighteen definitions that all call super would you like? Right. And not to mention that like that save definition might not be the like it might be from an entirely different gem or something like that, right? Like Oh, no, I'm just talking about in the Rails code base. Oh, and in the Rails not, code base. like some of them are on a different class. No, they're all, they're all correct answers for the definition of save on active record base. All 18 of them. This is one of those things where, like, I know there's a better way. I've probably discovered it before or looked it up before, but has not made its way into my muscle memory. And that's when, like, I'm in a project. I have a keyboard shortcut for, like, jump to the C tag, right? So from mm-hmm. it's, I think it might just be built into Vim, maybe. I don't think it's all left square bracket is the built into Vim one. I thought it was control right. Anyway, control one of the, I don't look at it. I control just one it. of the square brackets. Right. And it jumps and it jumps to the wrong place. And then I just go, ah, oh, crap. And I just AG for def, whatever. I know oh, there's right. a there's way to say like, shortcut for go to the next tag or like for this. show me all the tags. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just like, I don't know what that is. So I'm just going to AG for it. Oh, there yeah. it is. Like, <laughs> I should get into a C tags workflow. C tags for me have always been so terrible with Ruby. I just kind of, threw it out the window i think with rust it would probably be a lot better i should get into that workflow yeah so I, st- I, I i still grep for fn fn whatever yeah it should be able to use the type system to show you exactly what yeah. function you're looking for that one you'd need like something that hooks into the compiler but all of those tools do exist right all right should we wrap up sure okay show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 98 as always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. 
Thanks for listening to the bike shed, and Ruby still needs onesies. 